Great privilege and joy for me to fill the pulpit this morning. Now I want to ask you to turn with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. As you're turning there, I want us to think about the consequences of trusting in the wrong things. Now, depending on what the thing is, the consequences might vary quite a bit. What are the consequences of trusting in the wrong doctor? Uh, trusting in the wrong medical care, trusting in, the, in the, possibly the wrong diagnosis. This could cause severe health consequences on into life and could even result in the end of one's life. Trusting the wrong friends. This is common in the youth ministry, something I'm warning the teens about all the time. Do not trust in the wrong friends. And Proverbs 13.20 warns you of the consequences. The companion of fools will suffer harm. What about trusting in the wrong counsel for a difficulty in your life? There's a, a, a difficult problem, a difficult question. Should I, should I move here? Should I take this job? And you go to the wrong person for counsel. It could cause a lot of difficulty and grief in your life. Trusting in the wrong person for financial advice could cause uh, significant loss of your resources, your ability to care for your family, your, uh, your freedom to not have to work into retirement. All of these things could be uh, side-railed by trusting in the wrong person. Let's take it to the highest degree. What happens if we trust in the wrong God? We live in a world where ultimately the culture would say you can't trust in the wrong God. Just whatever feels right to you, whatever religion you choose, you know, they, they all have so much to offer. Just, just pick the God that you really desire. Each person has the right to worship whoever or whatever they desire. Yet God has declared with sovereign authority that there is only one true God. There is truth and there are lies. There is only one way to salvation through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's only one life that actually leads to blessing and eternal life. There's only one true God. The question for us this morning as we approach Psalm 115 is, what God are we trusting in? What's interesting is that we learn the answer to this question as we face affliction. Whenever you and I face suffering, it reveals where we are placing our trust. The, the trials that the Lord wisely brings into our lives ex, ex, expose where we are placing our trust, where we are ultimately turning for faith and worship and comfort and security. We've seen time and time again in our own church body a, a member uh, uh, go into a season of suffering, some great affliction. And what is so encouraging for us is when we see that person now under the weight of severe trials, the threat of their, their life uh, being taken from them, the, uh, the difficulty of whatever it may be, and the one who's trusting in the Lord in that moment, what's exposed when those trials come in is a, a solid faith that just encourages and enriches each of us. This is what happens in Psalm 115. The people of God are pressed from every side, and there is the exhortation and examination of what are we truly trusting in. This is the third psalm in the Egyptian Hillel Psalms that 
term Hallel is a, a Hebrew verb to praise. And uh, you, you all know this Hebrew verb already because you often sing it, Hallelujah. We sang a short and firm form of that this morning, Alleluia, Amen. Uh, this Hallelujah is the Hebrew verb to praise, Hallel, and then Lu is the, the second person imperative. It is saying all of you praise, and then Yah is the shortened form of Yahweh. So when you say Hallelujah, you're saying you praise Yahweh. You say it out loud in singing, you're telling the whole church to praise Yahweh, the one true God. These psalms from 113 to 118 are considered the Hallel Psalms, the Hallelujah Psalms. And they're known as the Egyptian Hallel because they are specifically, they are sung and used around the time of the Passover where they are looking back on God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. Think of captivity and bondage and suffering as slaves. These are the psalms, the hymns that they would sing to remember God's deliverance. I think it's fascinating about this psalm is it is not so much, it's not looking back on God delivering them in the past and saying, God, thank you so much. Uh, many people interpret this psalm that way, and I believe they miss a, a crucial benefit for us. This psalm is certainly a, a psalm that declares the glory of God, but it's a psalm that does so in the midst of God's people suffering. There's debate over uh, when this psalm was written, whether it is them about to go into exile or while Israel was in exile or even post-exilic after they are coming out of exile. Uh, I'll mention that when we get down some of the later verses. But uh, ultimately, uh, what we do know is this is a season of significant suffering. And uh, another thing I want to point out to you is that this is a corporate psalm. So when I say the psalmist, I'm not speaking of one particular person here. I want to show you the pronouns in the psalm are all collective plural. Look down at verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. In verse 2, a skeptic is asking about Israel's God. Where now is their God? Verse 3, our God is in the heavens. Down to verse 9 through 11, you see a refrain. He is their help and their trust. In verse 12, the Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. And then all the way to the end of the psalm, uh, verse 18, but as for us, we will bless the Lord. So what you see here is a corporate song. This is all of us singing together corporately, and we are declaring some very important truths about our God in the psalm. This is not a triumphal declaration of God's glory, like Israel just went through a, a significant battle, and now they're saying, yes, glory to God that we won the war. It's rather a psalm where the congregation is in a time of suffering. Amidst of difficulty, we don't know exactly what the difficulty is, but it's a, a setting that appears to be these pagan idol worshipers all around them, and they're mocking the people of God because it appears your God's not delivering you. You worship Yahweh, this God who made these promises. It doesn't look like he's going to help you at all. It looks like you've been left to your own devices in the midst of your suffering. What we learn from this psalm is how to remind our own hearts and how to remind one another 
of what to believe when life is difficult. Of what we are to set our hearts and minds on in the midst of affliction. Our songs, just as we already have sung this morning, are a precious encouragement where we're calling on one another to trust our God even when we cannot see what all He is working out. Even when we have no idea how He's going to bring about deliverance, how He's going to fulfill His promise, we still call on one another in our singing to praise Him and to trust in Him. We must place our complete trust in Yahweh. That is the essence of this psalm. So I want to give you uh, our outline to work through the psalm together is two motivations to trust Yahweh rather than idols. Two motivations to trust Yahweh rather than idols. In verse 1 through 8, we will see God's unrivaled glory. God's unrivaled glory. And in 9 through 18, we will see God's undeserved blessings. Let's start in verse 1 together and see God's unrivaled glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. This verse begins negatively. The, the people of God are saying something negative, not to us, not to us. Or you might translate as not for us. And they're, they're pointing out the, the primary emphasis of this verse being glory. Uh, they're saying uh, with repetition, which adds emphasis in Hebrew, God, the glory is not for us. It is not meant to come to us. It is, it is for someone else, and we'll see that in just a moment. The congregation, furthermore, is addressing the covenant name of Yahweh. This is L-O-R-D in your, if you have a New American Standard, all caps, name of God is, is his, his name Yahweh, his self-revelation of who he is, saying that he is utterly separate from everyone else. He is the, the, the self-existent God that uh, no one made him. He has always been. This is the covenant name of God. The, God. the name that God gave of himself whenever he made a promise to deliver his people. Uh, as, as Moses asked uh, of Yahweh in Exodus 3, who do I tell them sent me? And this is the way that God responds. Tell them Yahweh sent you. The God who makes a promise to his people and he keeps it. So here the people of God are saying, Oh, Yahweh, let the glory not be to us. Let's talk about the Hebrew concept of glory for a moment. It's not, it's not so much uh, the idea of what we think in the New Testament, radiant glory, a bright shining light. It is rather the Old Testament concept is that of weightiness, that of something being heavy. It's, it's the idea of significance. If you say something has a lot of glory, it, it carries a lot of weight, it, it is very important is the idea. It's the idea of God's reputation because of the significance of who he is. You might call it his intrinsic value, his significance. This is a prayer that God would give glory to his name. This is actually a command here. The people of God are singing, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, you, Yahweh, give yourself glory. It's the way that they're praying this. Now, certainly the, the command here of them declaring God, give yourself glory, is, is not as though they have authority. It's more coming from a, a heartfelt prayer. Like, oh, oh, Lord, please do this. Please give glory to yourself. 
And ultimately, this is a prayer for deliverance. You might not see it merely in verse 1, but you can tell the congregation is asking God to do something. What's, I think, so important for us to understand is the heart attitude behind their asking. They're saying, oh, oh God, act in such a way as to give your name, and that's the, the sum total of who you are, the, the fullness of your character. Make sure that you're getting all the praise. You're getting all the glory. So what are they asking God to do? Well, uh, we ultimately learn from this psalm that it seems they're in a state of difficulty and suffering. So they're asking for deliverance. They're saying, God, please deliver us, but not because we idolize comfort and we want, we want to be out of bondage because we think we're too great to deserve this trial. Uh, God, please act on this circumstance, but not because I want the reputation of being the one that, uh, that, that has come through this. No, it's all about the glory of God here. That's the, the humility of the heart of worship. It's saying, God, certainly please deliver me, but do it all for your name's sake. Do it all so that you're famous, so that everyone sees your reputation as the God who saves. The true worshiper loathes the idea of any glory uh, coming to them. So they humbly acknowledge their own unworthiness here. We're, we're concerned about God's reputation, not our own. We're concerned that He gets the glory that's due His name. I just want to ask you, do you pray this way during trials? Do you pray, God, please deliver me from this trial, but not because I long for comfort, but because I want you to be glorified in my life? That's a hard prayer to pray. God, even if this trial means I suffer for the rest of my life, God, do what gets you the most glory. That's a, a true heart of longing for the glory of God. That's the heart of one that God has saved. God, please provide for this need, but not because I want the material things, but because I want you to receive glory through what you've given me, through how I steward it, through how I use the resources. God getting himself glory is based on two attributes here in verse 1. Look at these two terms. These are very important terms in your Hebrew Old Testament, translated as loving kindness and truth. These are uh, terms that as God is expounding into who he is in Exodus 34, 7, he says, I am abounding in loving kindness and truth. It's the idea. God has a great degree of these two characteristics. He's not going to run out of loving kindness and truth. So what are these? Well, the first term, loving kindness, this is a, a favorite word in the Old Testament. It's used all over the place. This is the Hebrew hesed, which requires ultimately for us in English a compound word to try to define it. What is God's hesed? You see, your, uh, most of your translations would say something like loving kindness, where we're trying to get two ideas together because it's more than the concept merely of love. It it, it, it is two ideas. The, the first idea is that of stubborn faithfulness. Uh, the idea is God is unchanging and unwavering in what he promises. The other side of this word is uh, undeserved, unconditional love. So when you think God's loving kindness, the God's hesed, you're talking about <clears throat> God's unwavering love even to wavering people. A faithful love to faithless people. A covenant-keeping love to covenant-breaking people. That's the prayer. God, 
act in such a way that gets you all the glory because you're a God who loves with a covenant. You keep your promise. You have loyal love. You have covenant faithfulness. You might even call this unfailing love. So God, act this way so that you show your unfailing love to the world. The second word, truth, is uh, not truth so much as opposed to lies, but it is rather the concept of something being firm, something being solid, something being trustworthy. So uh, you might translate it more as truthfulness or trustworthiness. It is to say that God is reliable. He is dependable. He is someone that you can count on. I heard the illustration of this term, the Hebrew term for truth, Just think of all of the world's wisdom, all of the competing objects for you to trust in as a a swamp. You can't see where you're putting your feet. You just put it down and hope there's something firm down there. Well, the, the, the word of God, the promise of God, the character of God being truthful means that he is reliable. If you put your foot down, it is going to be firm. It's not going to move. He is dependable if you entrust your life to him. He will certainly provide all that He promises. So here's our opening prayer and really the theme of our psalm. God, get yourself maximum glory. And don't do this because we long for the comfort. Do this because you're a God with steadfast, unfailing love. And you're a God who is reliable, who is faithful. So show yourself to be those things. You get down to verse 2, and it gives us a glimpse of the mocking of the unbelievers. Uh, this is how we know these, uh, these believers are in the midst of suffering, because uh, there is the accusation that God has abandoned them. Look at verse 2. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? This is still in a prayer posture towards God. God, get yourself all the glory. Why? Because we don't want the nations, the pagan unbelievers around us, to be able to look at how unfortunate we are in our suffering and say, where's their God? He abandoned them. He deserted them in their time of greatest need. That's not a God we can trust in. Now, this accusation, this mocker, uh, is looking at the assessment and saying, You claim to worship a God who has all power. Look at your life. Where is your powerful God now? Why are you suffering so much if your God loves you with unfailing love? Surely he must not be reliable to deliver you if you're in this type of misfortune. Now, I think these accusations certainly come from pagan unbelievers. But if we're honest, these accusations come from our own hearts. We battle what's called self-pity of Woe is me. My life is, is difficult. And that's not an exaggeration. It is certainly, there's suffering in this life and, and pain and sorrow, even as we, we sang in the hymn together. But here, I believe these accusations, where now is their God, are most commonly coming up in our own hearts. You think, someone, you, you just lost your job. And the question in our hearts is, where is my God? Why is he not providing like he said he would? Your family is suffering. Where is your God? You have a a cancer diagnosis. Where is your God? You hear the secular science say they've disproven the Bible. Where is your God? Or maybe in ministry, you're losing influence. You're 
the people around you are not coming to you for wisdom and advice or the church seems to be shrinking. You have the temptation in your heart or other people outside the church saying, where is your God? Now we get to verse 3. This is, this is where we are singing corporately to each other and remind ourselves of the answer. So that heart of unbelief, now we all address one another. Here is the answer. In the moment of suffering, when I'm tempted to believe the lie of the mockers or the lie of my own heart that God is not reliable or God doesn't love me enough to save me, here's the truth, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. This verse flows out of an absolute conviction of God's transcendence and of God's sovereignty. Now the author points to these two truths about God to answer the question, uh, what do I do in the midst of suffering? Where do I turn? He says, you need to be reminded, our God is in the heavens and our God does whatever he pleases. The first truth points to his transcendence. As we speak of God's transcendence, we are saying God is, is far beyond us. He is not like us. He's not getting tired. He is not weak. It's not as though our God has limitations. This truth is highlighted this way by saying our God is in the heavens. This is to say he's not on earth. He's not a, a God that you, you left at home when you came this morning or a God that's only in the building you come to once a week. No, this is the God who is above all things. Why is God's transcendence comforting for the one who is in, in the midst of affliction and, and cannot see the out? Because there is not one single circumstance for our transcendent God in which you could say, God's not able to help me. There's nothing that could happen in your life where you would say, this is too hard for God. The one who sits enthroned in heaven, you'd say, no, that's the God that can do whatever He pleases. He transcends this earth. He is not an earthly God that I can look to and go to from time to time, but one who has authority over all things. That's the second truth that is highlighted. His sovereignty. His sovereignty. He is not limited in His power. The author says it this way, or the congregation sings it, He does whatever He pleases. You could translate it the reverse order. Whatever he pleases, whatever he desires, he does. Think about this. God has never wished that he could do something. He has never lacked the power to accomplish his desires. God has never said, if I only had this, I could do what I want to do. God has no limit, no lack. He, what he desires, what pleases him, he does it without end. Isn't that a comfort? Whatever you're facing in this life, it may be too hard for you. Very likely it is. It may be something that your earthly resources could not possibly accomplish it. But we need to be reminded there is nothing that is too hard for our God who transcends this earth, who is enthroned in heaven there's not an enemy that rivals Yahweh. Death is no problem for him. He raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. There's not a, a diagnosis that can cause him anxiety of, oh no, I don't know if we can resolve this issue. Sin has been defeated. Evil rulers come and go and 
He sovereignly rules over all of it. We read in our scripture reading this morning, Isaiah 46. I just want to point you back to verse 10. You don't have to turn there unless it's close by for you, but listen carefully to Isaiah 46.10. Think about God doing whatever he desires. He says, I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. And listen to this. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This is our sovereign God. He's enthroned in heaven, does what he pleases. He says, there's no one else like me. I can tell you what's going to happen at the end, all the way from the very beginning. And my purpose will certainly come to pass. I love that last line. That's the same word for pleasure. In our verse, he does whatever he pleases. There in Isaiah 46.10, he says, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. It's not as though God can accomplish some of the things he wants to do, but he lacks resources to do the rest. No, our God can do all that he pleases. Think about this. We are singing this to one another in the midst of our affliction. God, get all the glory for yourself on account of your character, your loving kindness and truth. The mockers come and they say, where is your God? But we know you are ruling and reigning in the heavens You do whatever you please. This brings up the competing gods, those who would uh, have so-called glory to rival God. This is why I call this uh, our God who is unrivaled in glory. Uh, Down in verse 4 to 7, we have a contrast of the one true God to now here are the idols of the world. Look with me at verse 4 to 7. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Commentator Derek Kidner notes here, he says, This caustic catalog of verse 4 to 7 needs no sermonizing to make its point. The facts are enough. It is one of the places where Scripture, like the child in the story of the emperor's new clothes, takes a cool stare at what the world does not care to admit. What is he saying here? What was just described of idols in verse 4 to 7? They're nothings. They are the creation of man's hands, and they're made to look like they could actually help you. They have mouths and hands and feet, and, and yet they're all useless. It's to say they're, they're false gods, their idols are dead and lifeless. And the world is unwilling to admit that. Look at verse 4. It says they are man-made gods. Here, silver and gold are used to attempt to make their idols look more magnificent than what they are. Uh, Isaiah 44, another passage I would have liked to read for the scripture reading this morning. There's a man who cuts down a tree. With half of that tree, he builds a fire and he cooks his dinner. With the other half of that log, what does he do? He fashions a god for himself and bows down and worships it. The same wood that he is warming up his dinner on, warming himself on, is the same wood he fashioned into a god. That's Isaiah 44. And the author Isaiah there is just pointing out the futility of idol worship. 
That's what the psalmist does here. The congregation says their idols, yeah, they're silver and gold. They put shiny stuff on them to make them look impressive. But really, it's a block of wood. The second part of verse 4 is so sobering. The work of man's hands. These idols are derived from men. They're a human product. Their gods are their own creations. Isn't this interesting? In the context of Romans chapter 1, think back to Romans 1, 21 to 23. They exchange the glory of God for created things. They start worshiping creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Their, their foolish hearts are darkened. They're deluded. They're buying a lie. They're believing this block of wood is my God that will deliver me. So Israel, as, a, as an exhortation to trust in the one true God, points out the folly of idolatry. No one says it better than Charles Spurgeon. Listen to him paint this picture for us. Idols of gold and silver have a mouth, but give no counsel to their worshipers. Eyes, but see not the devotion, nor the wants of those who serve them. Ears, but hear not the cries of distress or songs of praise. Nostrils, but smell not the fragrant incense presented to their images. Hands, but the thunderbolt which they seem to hold is a a harmless threat. They cannot launch it. Feet, but they cannot move to help the fallen. Ah, they cannot so much as whisper one syllable of response or even mutter in their throat. Spurgeon is just saying... They have all the faculties of looking like a man, looking like someone who could actually help, and they're useless. They can do nothing. He goes on comparing uh, these idols to God. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He made everything. They themselves are made by men. He is in heaven. They are upon the earth. He does whatever he pleases. They can do nothing. He sees the distresses, hears and answers the prayers, accepts the offering, comes to the assistance, and effects salvation for his servants. They are blind, deaf, dumb, senseless, motionless, and impotent. Equally slow to hear, equally impotent to save, in time of greatest need will every worldly idol prove on which men have set their affection and to which they have in effect said, Thou art my God. So well said by the wordsmith there. It is futility, foolishness, worthless to look at something you and I could make with our own hands. Now, let's take a step back and recognize in our culture, we look at someone carving a block of wood and worshiping it. Our culture says, yeah, that, that's foolish. Even unbelievers would say, oh, we've evolved past that. You know, I don't need some false god to give me a sense of security what do we have that's a sense of security how about paper with a president's face on it it's like i i am so secure in life because i have money Uh, uh, my my phone shows me a number of digits that gives me security in my life i have i have something to trust in or we look at our own glory and and we think i have made a name a reputation for myself We need to ask, is it really wiser to put your full trust in money rather than a block of wood on the shelf? Is it wiser to put your trust in medical advancements or to put your trust in your your financial investment? Is it 
any less senseless to seek your own glory and live by the work of your own hands than it is for these idolaters to worship wood on a, on a table. Verse 8 describes the result of worshiping idols. Look at verse 8. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. What's the result of worshiping dead, lifeless idols? They become dead, lifeless worshipers. The principle here is that man becomes like the one that he worships. Greg Beale said, what we revere, we resemble. As to say, what's of highest importance to you, you will conform your life to that image. What matters the most to you, you will set aside everything else to pursue after that thing. That's the essence of idolatry. And just let's round out these first eight verses here as we're uh, summarizing this section. Considering this first motivation to trust Yahweh, the unrivaled glory of God, back in verse 1, the congregation said, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you, Yahweh, you get all the glory. And then he compare, or they compare and contrast idols to Yahweh. Why didn't they say back in verse 1, not to idols, O Yahweh, not to idols, but to your name give glory. I believe there is a very close connection that we are to gather from this psalm between self-worship and idolatry. What did we learn about idols in verse 4? They are the work of man's hands. They are something that you and I could produce. Here we see in verse 8, uh, here is the idolater, the one who is trusting in them. Uh, this term for trust is describing where someone gets their security. It is a, a term that can mean to quiet something. Uh, it, it's a, a term that means someone is so comfortable, they're unsuspecting of any danger. So the, uh, the idea of this Hebrew term is this is what makes you feel safe, makes you feel secure. I, I run to this when life is full of anxieties and trials because this is what gives me security. This comforts me. This is trusting in idols. So again, that question we began with, where is our ultimate trust? What God are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the God who has given His Word? The God who has given His Son? Are you trusting in Yahweh, the God of the Scripture? Or are you trusting in idols? We need to view idolatry very clearly according to the Scripture because uh, John Calvin said in his Institutes, our hearts are, he, he says, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. The idea we're always making something that we think will deliver us. We're always making something that's like, this will fulfill me. You know, those last 30 things I tried did not, but this one will you know, this one will be the one that really gives me the satisfaction, the purpose of life. Idolatry is not harmless. What we can uh, achieve by the work of our own hands or the works of someone else, uh, those things cannot give us security and comfort. We must trust in Yahweh. Let's now consider the second motivation to trust Yahweh in verse 9 to 18. God's undeserved blessings. God's undeserved blessings. Look with me at verse 9 through 11. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. 
He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Notice the change in the pronouns here. You have this uh, command in the first part of all those verses, and then uh, the response comes after, and it speaks in the, the third person. He is their help and their shield. Here, what we have is antiphonal singing. So you have a, a song leader that is, is addressing each group individually, Israel, house of Aaron, those who fear the Lord, and tells them, put your trust in the Lord. Go to the Lord for comfort. And they respond back singing, he is their help and their shield. The, the idea is they are calling one another to trust in Yahweh alone. I think it's interesting he addresses three different groups here. Uh, here he addresses Israel. This would be ethnic Israel, the nation as a whole. He addresses the house of Aaron. This is the priest. Uh, and thirdly, he addresses you who fear the Lord. And the emphasis there is likely describing anyone who's not a Jew or a priest. Everyone who trusts in Yahweh. Here is the path to blessing in your life. Trust in Yahweh. Trust Him, not anything earthly. This fear of Yahweh is a description of every true believer. This is used throughout the psalm, uh, Psalms as a description of a believer. Think about this for a moment. He addresses all three of these groups because there is only one hope. There's only one person we should put our trust in. It's not as though the nation of Israel has a different hope. They can trust someone else or priests. You know, they're really close to God. They can trust in someone else. No, it's all three. Trust in Yahweh. There's only one hope for Israel. Only one hope for a priest. Only one hope for everyone. Every God-fearer must trust Yahweh. We examine this by asking, what does my soul look to to be satisfied? Furthermore, the response here is telling us why to trust in the Lord. The response of the congregation, He is their help and their shield. This term help describes God as the one who acts on behalf of His people. It is not a saying where God helps those who help themselves. That is not the idea. The idea here is God helps those who acknowledge they can't help themselves. And they cry out to Him in desperation, God, save me or I die. If you do not act, I am done. And this is the idea of God being a help. He is the one who saves when we could not possibly save ourselves. A second term is a shield. This is the picture of protection and security. Uh, Psalm 20 is, is an exhortation to trust the Lord. And in verse 7, says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. Where do they look for protection? They look to an army. We have chariots out there. We have horses. We have everything we need. But Psalm 20, verse 7, but we will trust in the name of Yahweh, our God. That's the attitude of the congregation singing back. He is our help, the one who can save us when we can't save ourselves. He is our shield, the one who can protect us like no army possibly could. We're to trust in the Lord alone as the source of salvation and the source of security. And again, that idea of repetition. Repetition in Hebrew adds emphasis. Why does it need to be said three times? Because we're prone to forget. We're prone to look somewhere else for salvation, to look somewhere else for security. So in this song, we sing it over and over. 
These worshipers turn from looking now at God's power to considering uh, his, his willingness to bless. Look at verse 12 and 13. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. Notice the future tense here. He will bless us. He will in the future bless the house of Israel, Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. The emphasis here is that of faith. The the people of God are praying and they're saying God has been mindful of us. He has remembered us in our distress and he will most certainly deliver us. But they're not putting a timeline on God. They're not saying, God, if you don't deliver us this week, you know, if you don't fix my trial right now, you know, it's just not going to work out. They're saying, we can trust the Lord will do what is perfect, what is wise. He will bless us. Even if that is in death and blesses us for all eternity, we can still trust in the goodness of God. Everyone who trusts in Him will receive this blessing. The end of verse 13 addresses again those who think, ah, I'm too insignificant. God couldn't bless me. Like, yeah, sure, maybe He blesses those those, those pastors with lots of influence or those other Christians that are discipling so many people or, or this person who's really gifted. Notice the end of verse 13. He will bless the small together with the great. Everyone who trusts in Yahweh will receive this blessing for all eternity. No one will be left out. Again, the repetition emphasizes the truth. He will bless. He will bless. He will bless. You get down to verse 14 and 15, and there's a request. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth. This request is ultimately for Psalm 127, 128, God blessing the family life, God giving children, God growing their population. I believe that likely points to the psalm being a time where the population would have been dwindled. There would have been suffering as they were in exile so it could be god grow the nation again god give us babies as blessings and and that is the prayer look at the end of verse 15 here here is why we have confidence god will answer all these prayers the title given of the lord he is the maker of heaven and earth think about it addressing god as the one who made heaven and earth god spoke And the earth came into being. What could possibly be too hard for this God? Listen to Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. That's the idea. When we look at God as creator, you're saying there's nothing our God can't do. Verse 16 continues that blessing The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. The idea of blessing here is that everything belongs to God, and yet he has been so kind as to give to the earth the sons of men. Here, the the idea is not so much of heaven's God's domain and earth is ours, so we rule and reign here and he rules up there. It's rather the idea of God's generosity. He is so kind, so, so gracious to bless us, He has given earth to the sons of men. He lets us live and breathe on his planet that he is sustaining by the word of his power, that he is supplying for our needs. This is God's generosity. 
And those who trust and serve the Lord on the earth will enjoy his blessings here and now, yes, but also for all eternity. Look at verse 17 and 18. There's a group here that will not enjoy blessings for eternity. Verse 17, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. This is the group that worshiped idols back from verse 4 to 8. Those who trust in those idols, now they're described here as the dead. Literally in the Hebrew, the dead do not hallelujah. They do not praise Yahweh. They don't praise their maker. God's not pouring out blessing on them, nor do any who go down into silence. This is pointing to their end. The ultimate end of idolatry is not what many like to say of, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and party it up in hell. It's not the idea. It's the idea of solitude and suffering. It's not saying they cease to exist. It is saying they, they do not live in joy and give praise to God forever. Rather, they go down into silent suffering, agony, all alone. The last contrast here is amazing. Look at verse 18. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. In contrast to those who worship idols, who are headed for silence and suffering, we anticipate an entirely different yet still eternal existence. Notice, we will bless the Lord. This is not the idea that we add something to God. It's the expression of praise. And notice how long we're going to bless the Lord. It's not for this lifetime. No, he says, for, from this time forth and forevermore. This is to say, those who trust in Yahweh and worship the one true God anticipate worshiping Him for all eternity, singing the, the, the songs of His praise for all eternity, never running out of reasons to give Him thanks, reasons to bless Him. And the psalm concludes with our Hebrew phrase, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, giving all praise to our God. And remember, by this point, we don't know that Israel was delivered out of their suffering in this psalm. Yet we know everyone who truly trusted Yahweh will be with him for all eternity in blessing because of the work of Christ. This is two motivations to trust Yahweh rather than idols, God's unrivaled glory and God's undeserved blessings. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, truly we marvel at how gracious you are to sinners like us. If you were not a God who was abounding in loving kindness and hesed, this loyal, unfailing love for us, we would have every reason to despair. Lord, we deserve to suffer. We deserve to face difficulty and agony. and We don't deserve health or wealth or prosperity of any kind. Ultimately, because of our rebellion to you, our idolatry, we do deserve that silent suffering that we saw in verse 17. And yet, in your abounding love, you've drawn us to yourself. You've given us every motivation to trust you. So please strengthen us. As a body of believers, may our conviction be, Lord, get all the glory for yourself. Let none of it come to us and do this on account of your namesake. And when the world mocks us, may our conviction be you are sovereignly, sovereignly reigning in the heavens and you are wisely doing all that you please. 
And we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.